Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. All right, Dr. Jones, thank you for spending some time. Um, and welcome to Nashville, by thank the way. You. Great to be here. Well, there's so many topics I want to get to. Higher ed is, um, you know, for those, I think when you're at a sort of a picnic or you're at a, a, a gathering maybe in your neighborhood, people think, oh, that's so sweet. You work in education, right? It's just this. But there's so much to it, right? It's big business. There's competition. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your background. Um, and I want to talk about, obviously, one thing that stood out to me was your work at Duke University in, in vice provost of global strategy. And I think that that's something, that, that's a thread that we don't often pay attention to, mm-hmm. but is imperative to economic development, not only locally, but nationally and within the sector of higher ed. Can you talk about just your experience thinking about global strategy in, in higher ed and its implications as you now are here at Belmont University in Nashville? Well, it's changed a lot over the, the last few decades, and it's, it's important uh, because economics business uh, is so much more global and international. Technology has uh, shrunk the world uh, in a variety of ways, so communications is uh, much more so. And I think, actually, if we just look at politics, it's important to be building bridges and, and relationships. And so um, I've long believed that paying attention to those international dynamics is important to our uh, well-being and our future, the future of work, the kinds of jobs that our students will be having over the course of their uh, career. It's gotten more complicated as... Uh, the political dynamics have shifted over the last uh, few years. You know, there was a time when there was a lot more freedom of mobility uh, internationally, um, and now those dynamics have changed both because of uh, tightening uh, restrictions on uh, student visas on the one hand, as well as now with COVID uh, changing that as well. But, uh, you know, American higher education has benefited for a long time from international students um, and I think it's important for us to have study abroad programs to be sending students to experience other parts of the world as well. Now, you've, you've done a lot of writing in your life, more than uh, enough for many lifetimes for, for most people that are either listening or, or, or reading uh, the article uh, relative to our discussion. But one of your, your latest is navigating the future, traditioned innovation, which I know is a term that you've coined. So I want to talk about that. But for wilder seas, can you define wilder seas for us? Yeah, it actually goes back pre-COVID, uh, even uh, uh, back to 2013, 2014. One of the things that struck me was a survey that Duke Corporate Education did with uh, uh, CEOs from around the world, uh, some of the largest companies, and, and they ha- they drew two conclusions. I think this was 2013. And the, the two conclusions that they drew from the interviews with CEOs was that the future is less predictable and knowledge is less reliable. Now, that was eight years ago, pre-COVID, pre uh, all sorts of conflicts uh, we have uh, in within the country and around the world. It was just saying that uh, we're in a time where it's a lot harder to anticipate what the future looks like. Those wilder seas, I thought, uh, were the case that you know the pace of change uh, and the uncertainty of what uh, five years looks like, five years out looks like. Um, and then that's all intensified in what I now call multiple pandemics. Uh, that COVID uh, is one of those, uh, but so also has been the heightened attention to racial injustice, the economic disruptions, 
political polarization, and then I've really been focused recently on the mental health challenges that uh, people uh, pretty much across lifespan are dealing with. And so all of this is suggesting that uh, we're in a we're in a lot more turbulence, uh, and it's it's a, it's much more difficult to anticipate what the future looks like. Mary Barra, uh, the CEO of General Motors, said. You know, we can't look to post-COVID, which whatever that means, uh, but we can't look to going back to normal. And she says we can't even think about a new normal. She said we just have to deal with a new abnormal. And that's a big part of what I mean by Wilder Seas is that we can't predict things in nearly uh, the ways we thought. And so we've got to navigate amidst a lot of uncertainties. Where does higher ed sit? I mean, yes, COVID, and I... And I I think a lot of people resonate with these multiple pandemics. When we think of it, you know, pre-COVID, you know, for years it's been sort of what's the what's the path higher ed is going to take, right? Where is that value proposition for students that can now learn online, that can take classes from around the world? It's sort of, in essence, what role, if higher ed is a character in a play, do, do, does that character play now as maybe opposed to when it was the main character? And do we have a new or renewed appreciation for higher ed given the turbulence that you speak of? I think there's a yearning for a, a, a new role for higher education, but higher education's not yet stepping up to the plate very well. Uh, we've been through a stretch of time where higher ed has not had a good answer as an industry to the question of why. Um, and so we've settled for what's and how's. And I think now there's a lot of uncertainty um, about what the real value proposition is of higher education. Um, there's a lot more questioning about the value of a degree that Google and some others have started to say, we're less concerned whether you have a four-year degree than whether you have the skills we need. I think once higher education gave up on issues of character, uh, we lost some of that value proposition because I think the real value proposition is forming character and forming people with a clear sense of purpose and character and some skills. But the skills are changing so rapidly, you know, talking to some of the C-suite leaders in Oracle that's bringing a big campus to Nashville, 8,500 jobs, they're not really looking for people with great coding skills. They figure they can teach the coding skills because they're changing so fast. They're looking for people who can think and write and communicate well, who can make decisions wisely. And I think those are the real challenges and the opportunities for higher education. But right now, I think there's a lot more um, – survival strategies than there are clarity about our value proposition. Do you think it's okay, Dr. Jones, for higher ed to not have the answer? I mean, it's, it's sort of, it feels like it's matriculated almost like a blood clot where K-12, right? We start to say, okay, it's okay if we don't have the answer. It's fluid. If we look at education technology, it doesn't have to be perfect. We're going to work with our partners and see how kids respond and teachers respond. But it feels like it's kind of worked its way up where higher ed is still stuck or there's a perception that if you don't have the answer, then there's something wrong. But don't we live in a world where we have to pivot? It has to be fluid. It has to be iterative. Whether it's Oracle saying, look, these things change all the time. We need you to be free thinkers. Is higher ed stuck in that? Or is that just a, a, is that a perception that we need to change the narrative? We need to think about that. Well, I distinguish between uh, having a clear purpose and having the answer. I don't think higher education needs to have the answer. I don't think there is an answer, um, or if it is, it's an answer to an un unasked question. Um, I think that the key is if you have a clear sense of your purpose, if you can answer the, the value proposition why 
you're important. Then you are engaged in what you're describing, that fluidity and that adaptability. And that's what I mean by navigating is you, you need to have a compass to know where your North Star is, to be able to know where you're headed. Otherwise, you're like in bumper cars. And that's where I think higher education tends to be these days is we, we're just careening from collision to collision with uh, with varying kinds of pressures, whether that's on the economic front or whether it's on the degree front or whether it's on the tuition front or the government research, all those kinds of fronts, we're just kind of in bumper cars. Whereas when you have a clear North Star that says, here's our purpose, here's the value proposition, here's what we can do that others can't do, I think there's a yearning for that. But right now, we're not doing a really good job of answering that purpose question, that why. Do you think an answer, or maybe not an answer, but maybe an, an opportunity is in integrating more of the private sector into the experience of higher ed, right? So classically, it's been that you go to you go to your institution, and that's great, and you learn a lot, you gain skills, but then they kind of take those away from you when you get into the workplace because they want to give you that real-time sort of experience, and yet students will say, gosh, I just wish I could kind of combine the two. How do we get to that point so that we have a clearer understanding of the value proposition. I just actually had coffee with a graduate student here locally in Nashville earlier today, and that was that was his key message to me was, you're interviewing the, the presidents of, of the universities here in Nashville, like help help me understand how they think about the integration of real world and classroom. And my question for you maybe is more around faculty and how we think about the sharing of knowledge and sort of standing behind a lectern. And is that still the right mode of operation that will get us the results that we are, I guess, aspiring? Short answer is the no. Um, we need a much more uh, set of intrinsic relationships rather than transactional ones between uh, the university and various partners, both businesses, NGOs, um, healthcare institutions, um, all the various partners. We need to have much more of an iterative, intrinsic relationship that's rooted more in images of friendship than of contracts. And uh, that's going to change the dynamics of how we think about uh, what it means to be, be faculty as well as how we engage uh, and form students well. Belmont's got an advantage in that we started a college of music business a number of years ago and really worked on those intersections. And so internships and the intrinsic relationships is more natural to us. We also have that in places like our, our College of Health Sciences and Nursing, where there's much more of that intrinsic relationship. As we launch a new data collaborative that's working across our vocations, one of the things we're focused on is how do we actually anticipate what our partners need in terms of those uh, of our graduates, and then how can we help students while they're on campus uh, begin to work on real-world problems with our partners in ways that makes it much more seamless uh, kinds of connections. One of the long-standing challenges that you find, especially in professions like law, has been a dissatisfaction with the readiness of law school graduates to practice law. And that is something that we've been emphasizing in our College of Law. We're one of three colleges in the last uh, three years to have 100% bar passage rate. I'd rather have 100% bar passage rate and people that law firms say are ready to practice law than academic prestige. So we've got to reimagine how we relate to uh, partners and not see it as just potential hiring uh, units on the end in a kind of transactional relationship, but people who are helping to shape the curriculum, shape our vision. And that includes practitioners uh, teaching classes as well.
do you think some of that is fear-based or fear of the unknown? I mean, if you think, if you think about a, a family unit, right, if, if I know that my value as dad is X to my family or in, in a small company, that this is the value that I bring, that if we even discuss that value or of high, like, and we put higher ed in that, when we think about going out to private sector or what students might need, that the fear is that we might find that we're not as valuable as we once were, maybe, and or then the economic implications of that. Yeah. Because there are jobs at stake, right? There, this is, it is competitive. Right. I mean, it is at the end of the day, it is higher ed, just like K-12 is a business. Yeah. Um, how do we weigh the perceived fear of not coming across maybe as valuable as we think and then worrying that there's going to be a sort of a, a, a down effect on admissions and all retention? Yeah, I think it's an important question. I would say that uh, very little ever comes uh, out well when you start with fear. And yet that is part of the reality that's on both sides and so then people hunker down and they develop mistrust and that can become a problem um, on the other hand what i would say is the best way to combat fear is to listen and if you spend time talking to uh, leaders of other uh, industries and other organizations often what you'll learn is maybe your value isn't what you thought it was it may not be the same as it once was there still is a value to be had but it may require you to change. And that's where the willingness to change and to adapt, that fluidity you talked about earlier is really, really important. And so, for example, you know, Google can say, well, we're not, we don't care if somebody has a degree. Well, that's a, that's a kind of shot across the bow to say, hey, don't presume that you, you get to regulate everything. On the other hand, if you ask people at Google or you ask people at Oracle or, or any of these large firms, Apple, they are looking for people who have wisdom. They're looking for people who have a certain kind of character, are going to be reliable people uh, to work with. But you then have to say, okay, what are those sorts of dispositions you really value? What are the sorts of skills? And then you have to take a hard look and say, is our curriculum actually forming people that way? And are we willing to listen and to adapt uh, and to, to learn in, in those sorts of ways? It means we have to give up control of assuming that we have uh, the right answer to the various questions. Control, I think that's an important topic. You know, there, of course, there are so many, I mean, every industry has had, right? And we are in a, in an information age, right? So news just breaks all the time. But higher ed has had a rough go in the last decade with college admissions scandals and all kinds of things, right? Looking at the way athletics play a role in recruitment and sort of the brand of, um, we see that with Division One sports and these different elements. How do you, just what are your thoughts on that? I mean, when you think about the role, because it, it is important, right? So if I'm talking to people that are outside of Nashville and I'm going to be speaking with the president of Belmont University, I follow them in the tournament, right? There, and there's, I would imagine, brand benefit, and we don't want to um, take away from the value of that, but how do we balance sort of what is maybe appealing from a marketing perspective versus the substance of the education that a student gets? Oh, it's a good question. I think um, I would say that when it's all working together, it's incredible. So, for example, part of the – there are brand reputational values um, that are associated with athletics or performance. Uh, you know, it's great that we have a number of Belmont grads who are well-known musical performers, and uh, so that's that's great as well. What I want us to be is to be aligned so that the the attractiveness of Belmont basketball, for example, is those are high-quality people who play well as a team and develop the kinds of skills that are going to be really 
important for leadership in the 21st century. So what we're doing on the basketball court or in the baseball field or on the soccer field isn't different from what we're doing in other arenas in the classroom. In the same way that I hope that our songwriting program and our music business program and our data collaborative, all of these activities are both forming people well um, and educating them in ways that will help them become the leaders that the 21st century needs. Let's talk about the city that you and I are looking out uh, from your office here. Uh, you know, we have more cranes here, it feels like, than maybe any city in the country. And I was saying to you off air, just the number of people when I'm interviewing them that, that sort of speak to me residing in Nashville and you and I share this city. Think about, when you think about Belmont and your decision to come here, um, and you, you've a storied career in higher ed and you've made a big difference uh, everywhere that you've been for my research. Why Nashville and why now at this point in your career? What made the most sense? With, and, and what role did Nashville play in that? Well, Nashville was a big part of the appeal uh, for uh, my wife and me. It's a great city, uh, and it's had extraordinary civic leadership over the years uh, from, a, from the business community and, and elsewhere. So it's a very healthy city. It's a growing city. And Belmont has a, a long and uh, strong relationship, understanding itself as Nashville's university, about caring about this area in Middle Tennessee uh, more generally. And I believe that uh, any healthy university needs a really strong relationship with its surrounding community. Um, I, it's, it's a great draw. Uh, I was, I was uh, visiting with some friends who have a who live in Texas, and they had a daughter who's a senior in high school, and so I was having lunch with her when she was touring Belmont, and I said, so what interests you about Belmont? She said, Nashville. <laughs> and I said, okay, whatever you know, whatever the draw is, but it, it creates a great symbiotic uh, relationship, and the fact that we have, you know, strong health care in, uh, in Nashville, and we've got strong health care uh, colleges, strong music, music city, we've got strong music and arts and architecture. Um, now technology, and we've got a data collaborative, there's a kind of mutually reinforcing set of strengths. And it's really important that we be committed um, as a university to our local context. That also it, it enables us to have this incubator that can then be also a global uh, reach in, in those sorts of ways. If you're dance partners with Nashville, who takes the lead? Uh, it it varies. It's more like a square dance where you uh, there's not one lead all the time. So you know, um, we're we're regularly in contact with uh, with both political, civic, business leaders, and I'm regularly asking questions. What do you see? How do you think we need to adapt? What can we do? How can we be a resource? Uh, we lead in some areas. They lead. They make requests. We respond. It's a it's a symbiotic uh, relationship, and we've got to we've got to continually be listening, and we've got to continually be speaking into uh, the opportunities that we see and the challenges we need to address. In those discussions locally, are, are there certain data points that you're you're seeing a trend develop when it comes to their inquiry of, of Belmont and maybe your role in participating, supporting? that is either sort of piquing your interest or it's going off on your own radar that says, okay, this is something that we need to internally talk about because it's a need that the city has or we're starting to see. How do you look at that? If we, if almost It's akin to a box score in baseball or something like that. Well, I would say that, for example, our data collaborative, which we announced about two months ago, that was partly because we knew Amazon, Oracle are coming, conversations with business leaders as well as with the mayor. Um, all were saying we don't have enough uh, 
we don't have enough people being trained to use data wisely and well for the companies we currently have. And that's in the National Business Journal and elsewhere. And so the more we can do to upgrade that, to offer certificates as well as degree programs to really enhance uh, ourselves as a resource to the national community, that's a, that's a key dynamic for us. So that's a, that's a place where in healthcare, in data, in music, we have relationships where we can continue to grow and build in collaboration uh, with the music industry. You know, country music used to dominate uh, Nashville, but increasingly it's music generally. Uh, people from New York and California are coming to Nashville, uh, and it's not only country music. That's still a kind of uh, a marker for the city, but so also is a broader array of musical uh uh, gifts and uh, genres in the city. On the other hand, I'd also note that there are some paradoxes. So Nashville is well known as healthcare city, and yet our healthcare outcomes are are not very good. And so we're working now with former Senator Bill Frist, uh, who had a recent column uh, in Forbes about health outcomes in Davidson County. And we're working with him on developing a, a healthcare data platform that will enable people throughout the city to improve uh, healthcare outcomes in particular neighborhoods. And so we want to also be developing research, teaching, partnerships to improve healthcare outcomes to address that. How is it that a city known for healthcare could have difficult health outcomes? Similarly, in education, we're known as the Athens of the South. But our educational outcomes in Davidson County aren't where they need they, to be. They don't match. So how do we work together to improve the, the conditions and the lives of people in Nashville and Middle Tennessee? I'm also concerned a lot about the rural areas because if Nashville is booming, but the rural areas around it aren't, that's not good for Nashville ultimately. And so really looking at how do we enhance the rural communities um, that are in Middle Tennessee and across the state of Tennessee so that everybody begins to see the benefits and to flourish, that'll help Nashville as well. Being in your position, I would imagine there are a lot of tough decisions that the public doesn't see or that things that you have to think about in your mind when you go home at night. How do you avoid being everything to everybody and yet a good steward of the institution that you now lead when you think about bringing in a new program to meet a local need to your point about the data collaborative yet if we think about it from a real estate perspective there are only so many rooms that you can fill for for different reasons with different people and faculty and so how do you approach that it's maybe not about one decision but what is what have you learned in your your experience in higher ed that says this is how i want to approach the leadership component. I know your role, leadership and ethics, and, and what you did at Duke. Does that come into play on a regular basis for you when you think about when you, we bring something in? It might mean that it's the, at the cost of something else, or at least that might be the fear. Yeah, there are always there are always opportunity costs. If you decide to do one thing, you're not going to be doing another. Um, I would say that the most important thing is to be clear about who you are and what your aspirations are, and thus you'll have a clearer sense of what you're for and what you're not equipped to really address. Uh, so, for example, if you take the, the data collaborative, uh, we're never going to be the primary place that's going to train people in coding. We don't have an engineering school. Uh, we don't have the size to really do a lot of that back office work. However, we can be a place that's really focused on how you become fluent in data, how you become literate, how you use it wisely and well. And so we can have a niche that's really important. That's not to say that there aren't going to be others, 
um, Tennessee Tech, Vanderbilt, places that do more in engineering, that uh, that might do more of the back office work. And part of it is for us also as we're, as we're launching a new college of medicine, the world doesn't need another Vanderbilt medical school. However, there is a significant need for physicians doing primary care and doing community-based health care. And that's a niche where we can play a really significant role uh, in complement to, to Vanderbilt. And so I think it's looking at that larger ecosystem and saying, what is it we are uniquely positioned or highly distinctively well-positioned to offer and to provide? And what do we need other people to be doing in the marketplace? Um, the danger is in, in trying to be all things to all people or in thinking in survival mode, just throwing it wherever there seems to be money available or anything else. That's a mistake. You've got to focus on what are our distinctive gifts and how can we build those? How can we contribute to a larger ecosystem in life-giving ways? Let's talk about your your contemporaries around the country that are university presidents and what they're discussing. I mean, I, I would imagine to sit here and to be a university president with this as the backdrop, there are a lot of envious uh, presidents out there that I would imagine when we think about just interest, admissions, the retention from year one to year two, which is obviously a, a major marker in the success of a program at a university. What are those discussions? What do they look like? If you could sort of take us behind the scenes, what are the main concerns that maybe we're not hearing about, but that might be impactful as our young people are thinking about where to go, how it impacts our communities, and the role that I think citizens should play in supporting local universities and colleges? I think one of the big questions that everybody is anxious about is the so-called demographic cliff of 2025 and 2026, uh, because the the number of 18-year-olds um, in those years drops precipitously, and so there's going to be a heightened competition for uh, college freshmen in recruiting in those years, and it's got every university and college president anxious. Those schools that are most tuition dependent, and particularly those smaller schools that have the, the smallest margin of error, um, are the ones that are most anxious uh, because they just don't have much fluidity in their financial model. And I think those schools are really uh, scared. Um, one of the great gifts for me at Belmont is that uh, my predecessor made a decision 20 years ago to expand the range of undergraduate majors and colleges. And so that gives us a lot more uh, flexibility. We have more of a portfolio uh, for uh, potential undergraduates to come to. And some of those are highly distinctive, like a songwriting major or a major in audio engineering technology. Uh, the competition in those areas is less uh, than in your standard kind of undergraduate majors, and so that gives us flexibility and adaptability. I think also if you're in a if you're in a small college in a small town uh, somewhere around the country, you're really anxious because the ability uh, to attract someone to that community where there's less options for you know weekend activities and those sorts of things, and there are fewer majors on offer, that's a hugely anxiety-inducing situation. Public university presidents are dealing uh, in many cases with, with more politicized state legislatures, and so they're struggling uh, a lot. Um, that's why there are just lots of different anxieties in higher education, and that's where I go back to having a clear answer to your why, knowing what your North Star is, and having that answer to your purpose, and knowing who you are, what your gifts and strengths are, enable you also to address some of your weaknesses, but you're not going to go chasing after uh, whatever the latest fad is, just trying to survive. Do you think we're going to see a consolidation of higher ed 
and that it'll be maybe mirroring this cliff. If you're talking about all these small schools that they're either going to go away or they're going to become a part of. Yeah, we're already seeing some of that. It turns out that, uh, uh, that some of the kind of move toward consolidation has been exaggerated. It turns out it's harder to kill off a college than some people thought 10 or 15 years ago, but they are disappearing and there's also consolidations uh, happening, uh, even, you know, in our, in our region, Martin Methodist College became part of the UT system, uh, this year. And so you're seeing some of that. I think it'll accelerate. I think the demographic cliff, uh, will have an impact on that. I think that the other thing that I think in the broader industry is a huge issue is the rise of technology and digital learning. And whether that's through uh, organizations like Southern New Hampshire and Western Governors University and, and organizations like that, um, you know, if you look, Western Governors University is now educating uh, more teachers than any other uh, college or university education program. And so what's that look like five years or 10 years out? What's the, uh, what's the model going to be? I still believe that there's a strong desire for residential education, particularly at the undergraduate level, um, just because it also provides a socialization and a, and a formation of character. And I was going to ask you that. 18-year-olds, you know, need a lot of that. That whole uh, that phrase on campus, I think, has changed yeah, dramatically. It has. And yet, you know, one of the dynamics that's also happened is that 18 year olds today um, are probably less emotionally and uh, uh, morally ready for the big world, uh, particularly a turbulent world. Um, one friend I know in higher education said, if you assume that uh, your typical 18 year old is probably uh, in terms of their character and their emotional maturity, more like a 14 or 15 year old, you'll be wrong sometimes, but less often than you think. And so I think that's where um, I think that technology is going to drive huge transformation in higher education, uh, particularly at the master's level and at the kind of credentialing for certificate level. I still believe there's going to be a strong desire for the four-year residential program uh, because of the role it plays in helping uh, socialize and uh, and develop character, but that's only for universities that care about those kinds of things. And too many universities and colleges, in my view, have kind of punted on the question of really attending to character and the development of virtues. And it's something we've long cared about at Belmont, and we're doubling down to say we really want to form character in our students. Figuring out how to do that well online and hybrid programs is itself uh, a challenge. The question is how to do it, not whether to do it. And how does that influence that year one to year two and that retention, right? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but if you get that student that makes it to year two, the likelihood of them graduating from your institution is quite high. Yeah. But that is a danger zone as well for many institutions because if a student doesn't feel engaged, K-12, we talk about engagement all the time, yep. but we don't hear that as often in the higher ed space yet. That's what I'm hearing from you is yep. that residential on campus is truly about the engagement so that you do feel connected to a community. Yes, and you've got to, higher education has too often thought of uh, human beings as brains on sticks. And we've thought of it primarily as just what happens inside the classroom. And we've paid insufficient attention to all the other developments that is going on uh, in young people. And so um, if you don't have an integrative approach, 
to forming people's, not only their minds, their emotions, uh, their perspectives, their lives, how they spend their days. Um, that's the pivotal thing. And, and if first year students experience that holistic approach, they're going to want to be there in year two and they're going to want to be there in years three and four and they're going to regret leaving because there's such a uh, a wonderful context for their continuing growth and learning we've got to move to toward a more holistic approach is that the mental health beings. the beginning of the interview it includes about. that that it absolutely includes that for us it also includes attention to their spiritual lives uh to their physical well-being we actually uh, have been emphasizing this year what we call be well be you and paying attention to a holistic approach uh to a student's growth um you know increasingly you can get the information via Google. That's why the, the kind of old sage on the stage kind of lecture uh, isn't really that helpful. Uh, you, you need much more of the kind of dynamic interaction where people are learning uh, and engaging and, and hopefully growing. And a lot of that's kind of calibrating what you're thinking as well as what you're feeling, what you're perceiving, what you're doing in an integrative fashion. What about faculty? How do you see faculty changing over time? I mean, classically, it was the tenure track. It was the, you know, you get, you know, whether you see that in film or TV, it's the, the professor that is, is there to teach, but really it's about the research, right? That that's their target. It's not about the engagement. It's not about all these sorts of things that you're, you're talking about that I think excite you at a visceral level to participate in your local community of, of higher of higher education, how do you think about the next generation of educator at the university level? And does this mean that we have to be looking for different qualities and types of people when we think about how we want to provide support for our students? Yes, and uh, one of the things that drew me to Belmont is that it's been intentionally a student-focused uh, university, and so we really look for faculty who want to invest in students, uh, and, and more so than research. That's not to say that a research university doesn't have its own distinctive place. Uh, but that means we're a different kind of educational setting than as a Vanderbilt or a Harvard or a Yale. And I think that variety is really important and valuable. I think that, uh, going forward, we're going to see more practitioners involved in education, uh, as well as, uh, the more traditional full-time, uh, uh, research-oriented faculty, I think we're going to see a lot more fluidity in what being a faculty member means. We're already seeing it for economic reasons in a whole variety of ways. I think that holistic approach to learning means that we're going to see people much more in a kind of mentor-apprentice model than just the kind of uh, professor lecturing to a classroom kind of model. Let's, let's close with this. I'm a big sports fan, and I love when they'll talk about your the moment when you first realized you were in the NFL, right? Was it that you were walking by someone, someone recognized you, you got a, it was a major hit or something like that? Well, tell me about the moment when it hit you that you were the president of a university. Now, you've held... You've held some very prominent positions, so this is not like, you know, you sort of came out of nowhere. But was there a moment for you or for you and your wife when you just, it just felt different? There was mm -hmm. a, you know, this is about people. This is about growth. This is about you, you've had a career and you're building a career. Um, I would imagine there's a sense of pride. There's a sense of accomplishment. How do you reflect on that? And did you have a moment? It probably uh, was my first day um, as president where we began with a, a kind of blessing prayer service uh, on campus. And then Susan and I went out into the city and we met with the governor, the mayor, superintendent of schools, country music association uh, leader, some uh, faith community leaders met with the 
CEO of HCA um, Healthcare, uh, saw Chancellor Deermeyer over at Vanderbilt. And uh, it was both gratifying to see um, the conversation and how they were perceiving me as a spokesperson for Belmont. And also the, the stakes of taking a, a 30,000 foot view of what's needed and recognizing that I actually had been entrusted with the leadership uh, to try to address those questions and those concerns as well as to seize those opportunities. And, you know, then coming home that night, we, we hosted a reception for our trustees and senior leaders and teams and realizing that, uh, that I'd been entrusted with the stewardship of a culture here on campus and the partnerships in the community and uh, believing that uh, that there was a, a great opportunity to improve people's lives. Uh, I went to bed that night just feeling a heart full of gratitude. Did you ever envision this when you were when you were a young student yourself? Not really. Uh, didn't ever. Uh, it, it, I didn't ever anticipate uh, the twists and turns that would lead me here. But now it feels like those were threads all coming together in a fabric that uh, it feels right. And uh, when I look backward, uh, it uh, it feels like lots of threads were leading us here. But I never would have anticipated it. Uh, when I was a college student, uh, the administration was just somewhere off in the uh, dim, misty recesses. And you got your, your undergrad was in communications, correct? Yeah. Do you think, I would imagine that serves you even, even maybe more, it's more applicable now than ever for you in this role. Oh, it is indeed. <laughs> it is indeed. And as are the experiences and relationships that I forged. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about, uh, the uh, the ways in which uh, little little things and along the way now taught me lessons that I'm using uh, today. Going all the way back to working in a catering service when I was in college, uh, which also gave me a lot of attention to detail and and the broad picture of an event. And you had a break in your career where you were not at a university, right? When you were consulting and working in different ways. I still was at a university, although I was also doing more of my time was spent doing spent. consulting with uh, Do you foundations. Think that, did that other. help? Do you think? Position, oh, give sure. you just a different level of not respect for the industry, but maybe just a different vantage point. Yeah. Well, I, I was working with people who asked very different sorts of questions. And, uh, you know, at various points, even when I was overseeing the global strategy at Duke, you know, I would be in Brazil or India or uh, Singapore, the Middle East. And they were asking questions about if you started a university from scratch, what would you do? And all of a sudden, I thought, well, I never thought of that because we have so many of them in the U.S. <laughs> and then you think, oh, well, I wouldn't do this and I wouldn't. And, and so all of a sudden, it, it just provides a different kind of uh, perspective. And you learn to ask questions in a different way. Um, I did some work in Armenia and, uh, you know, discovering people as they're trying to rebuild a country that had been uh, ravaged first by a genocide and then 70 years of Soviet occupation. Um, and they were trying to say, well, what do our people need? Which means everything from pre-K through K-12 to college and, uh, and beyond. They were asking a very different kind of question, which gave me an appreciation uh, for innovation and entrepreneurship and why that matters. And so I talk a lot here at Belmont about a future shaping orientation and the future of work. Well, that was less evident in the U.S. where until recently, we thought things were going to continue pretty much the same. Um, in Armenia or in Brazil, those were questions very much on people's minds 10, 15 years ago. 
they're now very much on people's minds in the U.S. And so all those experiences helped make me more attuned to the, to the questions we need to be asking now. I think the, the most important thing a president can do is not think about what answers there are, but about what the right questions are to ask. Yeah, you, you, you brought up questions, and that's a theme that I'm, I'm taking from this discussion. Is there a question that, that keeps you going, that motivates you, that in your private time you think about as, a, as a, either a result of the responsibility that you feel you have to this community, to Belmont, um, to your own family, just in your growth and the impact that you can have with a single decision? Is there a question that drives you uh, personally? I think there are... Um I think there are three um, intersecting questions that the first is um, for us as a faith-based institution, what does Christ-centered leadership look like? Um, And so it's a question about the kind of character that you're hoping to form in leaders. The second is um, how can disciplines work together to address complex problems that have resisted solution? Um, and then the third is, how can we help all people flourish better in life? And, and actually, all three of those are variants of one question um, in terms of what, what does it take to have people and communities and larger societies uh, flourish well? And I think those are, those are the kinds of questions that we're saying, what would it look like to have somebody flourish? And then how do we reverse engineer and design to say, Oh, that means we need to be preparing people. You know, we need to be preparing nurses who have business skills. We need to be preparing uh, musicians who understand healing. You know, it's it's much more at the intersections in those ways. And so those three questions are all dimensions of one overarching question that's really focused on what it means for people to flourish and live well, which actually is a question that animated Aristotle, you know, couple thousand years ago. A couple thousand years ago. Well, Dr. Jones, it's been a great pleasure to spend some time with you. I think the Nashville community is lucky to have you. You you wouldn't know that you are new to this area relatively since your appointment uh, just a few months back. Uh, There's a a rootedness to you that I experienced just sitting here Mm. in your office that I think is going to really benefit not just Belmont, but the greater Nashville community. And we need that because education plays such a vital role, even if we might not get the uh, the headlines uh, all the time uh, in lieu of TikTok and, and all these other things in pro sports, right? So it's a great yeah. pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you, uh, likewise. Welcome to the city and uh, and, and rooting for, for you from, from the suburbs. Uh, thank you, Dr. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.